Well, <clears throat> question we want to deal with today, perhaps, there are a lot of questions, but how does the church build up the church? What is the plan? How does the church build up the church? Do we have a plan? How does the church function when it is gathered together? So this morning, the church on Randall Place is gathered at 6338 West Randall Place. How do we function? What is the plan? Why do we do what we do? But more specifically, how do we build one another up? You see, Paul has put a very high priority on when the church gathers, let all things be done for building up. Paul, this has been the emphasis of Paul's address in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11 through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, which is where we have been at in our study in 1 Corinthians. But starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and going to uh, the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's emphasis has been single-minded. Let all things be done for the building up of the church. In other words, uh, Paul is addressing chaos in the church. He is addressing uh, shameful, shameful actions in the church because chaos and shame do not build up the body of Christ. And so our emphasis continues this day on build up the church, edify the church. Anarchy and chaos do not result in a solid structure. And so just a quick review of where we have been in chapter 11. Paul began addressing the church and he began addressing the issue of um, when women or wives pray or prophesy in the church and to do so in a manner that was not shameful, that did not bring dishonor to Christ or to their husbands. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about the chaotic way the Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and it was not building up the church, but rather it was uh, uh, tearing down those who might have been less fortunate. And then Paul in chapter 12 begins his uh, very well-known address on the use of spiritual gifts in the church. And we are going to conclude that today. But Paul uh, talks... uh, quite a bit about spiritual gifts. And whatever we might think of spiritual gifts, one thing that we can see as utterly and completely clear in chapter 12, chapter 14, what is clear? Spiritual gifts are given by God according to His will For the common good. They are for the common good. They are for the edification, or that's just one way to say, of the building up of the church. Whatever they are. And I spent a fair amount of time dealing with um, some last week. You can go back and listen to that message. And, uh, but I know that probably not everybody agreed with me. But whatever they are, 
They are for the edification of the church. Paul talked about uh, tongues and prophecy. And his, his issue wasn't with the gift of speaking in tongues, which we have described as speaking in real language. It is not. It is not speaking in syllables. I'll just say babble. And we expressed how that was. It is the spiritual ability, the God-given ability to speak in known languages. But they were, the Corinthians were, were emulating the pagans by speaking in what we defined or what Jesus defined in Matthew chapter 7 as batalogeo, which is nonsensical speech. Bata just means it, it, it's nothing. And you can go back and listen to that. I'm getting ready to go there again, but just go, and, go ahead and listen to last week's message. But it, it's nonsensical speech. And Jesus condemns us in, chapter, in, Hebrew, or in Matthew chapter 7. He says, this is the way the pagans pray. You don't pray this way. How do you pray? Our Father, the one in heaven, holy is your name. We understand that. And Paul compares that with prophecy. And the reason he compares it with prophecy is because it's clear. In fact, Paul would probably go ahead and say that prophecy and tongues are essentially the same. Prophecy and interpreted tongues are essentially the same because they are given to build up the church to declare the gospel to non-Christians. But if tongues are uninterpreted, I think in your notes I put they are useless. And last night I crossed that out. So you can cross that out too, if, I, if it's in your notes. They're not useless. In fact, we're going to see today they serve, uninterpreted tongues actually serve a very, very, uh, they serve a purpose. We're going to see that the purpose is judgment, but they serve a purpose. They are not useless. They serve the opposite function, um, and they serve not the, the calling of people to repentance, but it is a sign of judgment. So edification is Paul's main point. So here's where we're going to go. Let me give you a little bit of preview where I hope to go. Three big issues. Well, two and a half. Two big issues and then kind of a a halfway big issue. Big issue number one, in case I have not said it enough, edifying the church. All things are done for the building up. Look at verse 26. We're going to be in verses 20 through 40. And in verse 26, Paul then says, um, let all things be done for the built, for building up. And he's repeated that over and over and over again in chapter 14 and also uh, chapter 12. The second big issue that we are going to deal with is found in verse 40. And that is, let all things be done decently and in order. Those are our two big topics. Let all things be done for building up and let all things be done decently in order. And then here is maybe the third big issue and we'll get to it eventually. And it is the question of by what authority? By what authority do you do what you do? Paul talks about this. He says, did the word of God come forth from you? Did the word come from you or did the word of God come to you? In other words, by what authority are you doing what you do? See, oftentimes I think we are more 
um, guided perhaps by our experience or by what's pragmatic. But God, Paul is saying, why do you do what you do? What is your source of authority? Is it God's word or is it something else? So that's where we're going to go. So if you will, I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to read, we're going to take a big section today, verses 20 through 40. So follow along as I read the inerrant word of the living God. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all, for the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no, no one to interpret... Let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Well, Paul begins with an exhortation. Brothers, it's a little, maybe even a bit of a, an admonition. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Paul, the, Paul uses a couple words for, like in ch- for children. He says uh, children would have this idea of one who would be, uh, who's identified or characterized by self Centered thinking, as many children may be. Self-centered in their thinking. One author put it, to prefer the amusing to the useful. Showy. Paul contrasts that, but rather in your thinking, be mature. Don't be children in your thinking, be mature in your thinking. Be trained in your thinking. Be skilled in your thinking. That's the idea of being mature. However, in between that, he says, however, in evil, be infants. This has a sense of naivete. That is, 
Um, be innocent, unlearned in evil. So in your thinking, as, don't be like a child who is only concerned about himself. However, in your actions, be untrained in evil and instead be mature in your thinking. Remember, especially this idea of mature in your thinking is tied to the previous um, section, which Paul condemns the mindless worship um, that is that is uh, being encountered in the Corinthian church. Their fondness for the, quote, showy gifts at the expense of clear thinking is going to degenerate into unthinking, incoherent chaos. So be mature in your thinking. Think well. Think like an adult. Be trained in your thinking. Because Paul has just talked about how you are behaving in such a manner that is incoherent and chaotic. This is not displaying mature thinking. In other words, spiritual gifts do not result in mindless, ecstatic displays. I'll spend a little bit of time as we we go along, but some of the things we see in, in, in some churches that are this kind of mindless, ecstatic, and people say, well, that's the Spirit of God. It is not the Spirit of God. And I'll spend some time dealing with that. So, Paul begins with this. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then what Paul is going to do is he is going to provide for us Old Testament support for his statements. And he's going to take us back to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And he he writes, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, quote, By people of a strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. All right, so what's going on here? Well, if we go back to the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 28, um, we see this highlighted there. Paul has isolated verses 11 and 12, but let me give you a little bit of background as to where this passage or what Isaiah is talking about and what Paul is dealing with in this, and this will help us. The year is about 705 B.C., and God has spoken to his people in Judah. This would be the southern kingdom. You recall that Israel had a civil war, right? In 986, there was a civil war. And Israel was divided into a northern half and a southern half. By the time Isaiah is writing this passage of Scripture in about 705 B.C., the northern kingdom, the northern half, uh, has been taken away captive by Assyria. That happened in 722 B.C., Isaiah is now talking to the southern kingdom that has not been taken captive. And he said, you should probably learn a lesson from your sister up north. And if she refused to hear the word of God, the same thing is going to happen to you. Which, by the way, it did in 586 B.C. So this is about 705 B.C. And God has spoken. And he has warned that He has um, given a warning that what has happened in the north could happen to them if they don't heed the word of the prophet. And we see in Isaiah chapter 28, we see that the leaders are drunk. 
have this. Talking about the leader says, These reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophets reel with strong drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. That's a graphic picture. The prophet has spoken. The leaders are drunk, vomiting all over the place. And they mock the words of Isaiah. They say, oh, he just speaks line on line, precept upon precept, a little here and a little there. He speaks to us like we're babies. And they mocked Isaiah. So God says, if you continue to reject my clear prophetic voice through the prophet Isaiah, yes, it is simple. It is a little here and a little there. It is line by line. It is precept upon precept. It is utterly and abundantly clear what I am telling you. And instead you have mocked this clear prophetic voice warning you to return to covenant faithfulness to your God and you instead get drunk and mock Him. God says, then this is what's going to happen. With strange tongues, I will then speak to you. If you will reject the clear, simple teaching of Isaiah and you reject that, then here's what I'll do. I will speak to you with people of foreign language. And when you hear the invaders speaking in a language you don't know, know this, God's judgment has come. This was a word of judgment. And so, yes, Isaiah spoke to them clearly, line by line, precept upon precept, a little here and a little there. And in their drunkenness, they assessed it wrongly, saying, oh, he's just mocking, he's teaching baby talk. We want something deep, something rich, something full. We don't need that to be condescended to. And God says, fine, there will come a day when you will hear foreign languages outside your gates. Know then the judgment of God has fallen. And so, the inability to understand what was being said was not a blessing. It was rather a form of judgment. Judgment. Israel did not listen when God spoke clearly, which, by the way, again, I said Babylon came in in 586 B.C. and destroyed the southern kingdom, which should maybe show us the long-suffering of God. If this is written around 705 B.C., and 586 is when the judgment came. It's about 130 years of God's gracious calling forth return to covenant faithfulness, return to covenant faithfulness, but they rejected it. And finally, Babylon rose up and destroyed Jerusalem and took the people captive for 70 years. Israel did not listen when God spoke clearly. Now he will speak to them in an unknown tongue, which signifies his judgment. And the resulting confusion will become a sign of his judgment. When we get to Acts chapter 2, 
and there is this foreign language being spoken and people are hearing unknown languages being spoken in the city of Jerusalem. To unbelieving Jews, this was a sign that God was taking his, his message to the nations. Matthew chapter 23 Perhaps one of the most grievous passages in all, the, in all of Scripture. Jesus has come in to Jerusalem uh, triumphantly. He goes into the temple and they kick him out. And this is God's word, or the words of Christ to unbelieving Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left to you desolate. I have come into your house and you have rejected me. Your house is now left to you desolate, and you will not see me again until you, the day when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Acts chapter 2, foreign speakers came into Jerusalem, and it was a declaration that the house has been left to you desolate, and God is taking his message to the nations. No one can hear God because no one can understand with these, with these languages. When people hear this babble, they will think you are mad and they will think that it is no different from the pagan worship and it will actually push people further into unbelief. They will come in as unbelievers, hear this chaotic babble and say, this is just like what goes on in the pagan temples and it will be a form of judgment actually pushing people further away from God. God does a mighty work, but folks, this does not result in obedience. On the other hand, prophecy builds up believers in the faith. So uh, the, the tongues have come. They are a, uninterpreted tongues are a sign of judgment. They, make, they push people farther away from the truth. They do not bring about obedience to the faith. They do not bring people in. They do not declare the, the glories of God because nobody understands them. Even if it's a real language that nobody understands, they don't understand it. And if it's chaotic and everybody's doing it at the same time, people think you're nuts. On the other hand, prophecy, clear declaration of God's saving work in Christ actually brings people to salvation. Folks, we are to preach the gospel and we can do so clearly. We should know God's word and present it. In absolute, we can be like Isaiah, line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here and a little there. You do not need to be a scholar or a theologian. But a man or a woman filled with the Spirit of God will declare God's Word well. So Paul then gives an illustration. If everybody is speaking in tongues, and he goes on and he says, um, 
So what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation, that all things be done for building up. Um, I got a little ahead of myself. His illustration is simply, I'll repeat myself. Um, If all speak in tongues, which would not be a positive statement, it will solidify um, the unbelief of the unbeliever. They will not repent. They will actually end up thinking you are mad. Prophecy, however, is a clear presentation of the gospel that calls us to repentance. This is why Paul has a preference for prophecy, not because it is so-called greater or more important, but because it's clear. Prophecy builds up. Uninterpreted tongues are chaotic. That's where Paul is going. And then we get into this issue, uh, the, um, our big issue of decently and in order. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Chaos is ruling in the church of Corinth. People are singing. This is not Paul giving instructions of what to do when you gather. He is admonishing them for the chaos that rules in the church. He's not saying, listen, when you get together as a church, each one of you do these things. He's saying, this is what's going on in a chaotic manner. And in fact, after this, he's going to lay out how an ordered worship service is going to look. So chaos is ruling the church. People are singing solos, teaching lessons, providing revelations, speaking in tongues, providing interpretations. Paul is saying when you do this, he doesn't have a problem with people teaching lessons, singing singing songs, providing revelations, speaking in tongues, but he's going to say it needs to be done decently and in order, and we're going to see Paul outline that precisely. Right now he's saying when you guys get together, it's just chaos. After all, psalms, which would be a song that builds up, and, it, and that word probably includes musical accompaniment, but it's not a time to put ourselves on display. It is a time. Suzanne is our music leader. She leads us. Notice I say she is not our worship leader because worship is way more than the music. All right? She doesn't lead us in worship. She leads us in the musical part of worship. But she leads us in music. And it's not a time where we have, a, you know, where the musicians, you know, get to live out their rock and roll fantasy. It is a time where they lead us in song, where we lift up our voices together and we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we declare our faith together as a church. People were teaching, probably teaching known doctrine, the apostles teaching, revelation. People were declaring divine insight. There was tongues and interpretation, but Paul gives a very, very clear admonition. Let it all be done decently and in order. Let it all be done for the building up of one another. And if you're all just this cacophony of noise, nobody's getting built up. So then Paul then lays out order in the church. And let me um, do my best to give a preview of where I'm going to go on this. He's going to describe order in the church. And he's going to call for restraint from three groups of people. So it seems as that there are three groups of people who are... mm, 
not decently and in order. The three groups of people that Paul is going to restrain, if you will, would be, number one, those who speak on tongues. Those who speak in tongues, Paul is going to put some restraints upon them. He is not going to forbid them from doing what they do. He's just going to put some restraints upon them. Likewise, he is going to put restraints on the prophets. Again, he is not going to forbid them from prophesying. He's just going to say, here are the restraints. These are the parameters that you need to follow so that everything is done decently in order. And then Paul is also going to deal with women, and I'll spend some time there. But also, he's going to put some restraints, and he's going to say that everything, he's not, he's going to say, and everything needs to be done decently in order. So let's talk about the tongues people first. The restraint on speaking in tongues in the church. Here's the rule. Two or three at the most. Each in turn. So not at the same time. Each in turn. And someone needs to interpret. This corrects the bedlam that is displayed in verse 23. When you come together, everybody's just babbling. No. Two or three at the most. Each in turn. And then somebody needs to interpret. See, People wanted to show off their spiritual prowess. Look how spiritual I am. Paul is saying no. He's all for this gift being used in the church. He's just saying there are restraints. There are ways to do it in a way that everybody gets built up. Two or three at the most, in order, and if there's an interpreter. That's the rule that he puts forth. He puts forth a condition. If there is no interpreter, keep silent. I want you to note this. He is calling for the tongue speaker. If there is no interpreter, keep silent. This tells us a few things. Number one, it confirms to us that the spirit-inspired person is in control of themselves because they're able to keep silent. Unlike the pagans who lost control of their faculties in spiritual ecstasies. So when we see people rolling around on the floor and we see people... um, all talking in tongues at the same time, Paul would forbid that. And we seem to have, there, there seems, and this is kind of the, the tradition that I, as, as a Christian, was inaugurated in, that the more out of control you are, the more evidence that is the sign of the Holy Spirit. That's not true. That's nowhere in the Bible. If you are going to do these things, the very fact that you are able to keep silent tells us that you have control over your faculties. The spirit-filled person is one who is actually able to say and restrain themselves. Next, Paul puts restraints on the prophets. Again, the rule, two or three at the most, and the others will discern the message. See, Paul prizes prophecy, yet limits its use as well. Again, chaos is forbidden. Probably prophecy here would be a direct revelation from God or a reminder of the apostles' teaching, perhaps an unveiling of Christ from the Old Testament. Prophets were foundational to the church along with apostles. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2.20, that apostles and prophets are laid the foundation of the church. I've never built a house in my life. So maybe I'm not an expert here. You guys can back me up, you house builders. But once you lay, yeah, crew, I see you pointing at your dad. (laughs) Once you lay a foundation, how often do you keep laying it? I think you lay it once. Prophets and 
Apostles were the foundation of the church. And there are no apostles and there are no prophets today because they laid the foundation. In fact, when Paul and Peter and John, when they were nearing the end of their lives, they did not appoint more apostles. What do they appoint in the churches? Deacons and elders. There is no apostolic succession. It doesn't exist. They were important. They laid the foundation of the church. They did not appoint prophets and apostles to replace them. They called for deacons and elders to order the church. And so, we do have an apostolic succession, if you will. We don't have apostles, but what we do have is the apostolic teaching. That has survived through the ages. That we have. So if we talk of apostolic succession, we will talk about the apostles' teaching having um, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is good today. We don't have an apostle, but we have the apostolic teaching. So Paul is saying, listen, two or three, um, and somebody discerned the message. He prizes prophecy, but he also limits it. And then he even says this speech is to be discerned. So people should make a judgment about the, the speech that the prophets are speaking. And then the condition. Let the first be silent. In other words, once again, prophets are to be silent in certain conditions. And that condition is somebody else speaking a fresh revelation comes comes along, then the first person is to sit down and be quiet. He is to be in submission. So here's an explanation. Everybody can prophesy, Paul says, one by one. Why? So that all can learn and be encouraged. Prophetic speech, again, is not ecstatic speech. The prophet has control of himself. We're going to see that because he even says, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, um, the prophet has control. This is in contradiction to people who might just say to us, we should just let the spirit move or don't put God in a box. And when the spirit moves, it will be orderly and in a not chaotic. The spirit of the prophets, prophets can control what they do. And if somebody comes along, the first prophet is to be quiet, to be silent. This idea of just let the spirit, I, I believe personally, though we are a somewhat fairly structured church in the way we order our worship service, I do believe it is utterly and completely spirit inspired. I'll explain that as we go along. But people say, well, don't put God in a box. The spirit of God can do whatever God wants to do. Well, that's just not true. God cannot do anything he wants to do. God cannot lie. Well, I guess that's because he wouldn't want to lie, because it's not his nature to lie. But God can't lie. God, so we'll see a number of things that God cannot do. God cannot sin. So when we say, well, don't put God in a box, God can do whatever God wants to do, God does, and he's revealed to us what he, what he is going to do. For instance, would I be putting God in a box if I say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Hey, don't put God in a box. God could save people in a variety of different ways. I don't know. Maybe he could, but he didn't. So whatever restraint God has placed upon himself, whether that's a box or, or boundaries or, or walls or whatever, 
God has constrained or restrained certain things like salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Hey, don't put God in a box. No, I'm putting him in the box that he himself established clearly in his word. And God has clearly established how prophets in the early church were to function. See, because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Peace here is the opposite of chaos. The worship of God should reflect the character of God. The chaos and the disorder in the Corinthian church was not evidence of the Holy Spirit since it did not display the nature of God. Narcissism, disdain for others, disregard for the common good cannot be attributed to the Holy Spirit. So again, when people are rolling around barking like dogs, mooing like cows, saying that we have, we're drunk in the Spirit, that's just not in the Bible. It just doesn't exist. And people say, well, my experience, I've had this experience. I do not doubt your experience. I am not here to doubt your experience, but I am here to say, as Paul is going to say later, by what authority? By what authority? Did the word of God come from you? This is very clear. And then, Paul puts his restraint on women or perhaps wives. Probably wives. Um, same word. Greek, gune, is, can be women or wives, either way. But it indicates that there is some sort of shameful chaos that is taking place among the Corinthian women. So, quick introduction. I know that this is a challenge to mod- modern gender-sensitive ears, but it must be considered, and it must be considered in light of other texts, and I'll try to do that. But here's the rule. The rule is... As in all the churches, they are to keep silent. The condition, if you have a question, ask your husband at home. And then the explanation is that um, be in submission, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, how does this work itself out? What's Paul talking about here? My goal is not to soften this but I want to treat all the relevant texts together. Because this, I think, is... is ch- I think on, we, we have two extremes. The one extreme would say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just a misogynistic, um, first-century male in a patriarchal society. And so he was wrong. And we have a whole group of people who say that. We have another group of people on the other extreme and they say, well, we take this absolutely literally. Paul says, be quiet. Women, be quiet in the church. Don't say anything. And 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, um, was it 2.11? Seems to be the the exact same thing. So we stand on that. Great. And if 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians uh, 14 were our only verses, then that on, on this subject, then I would stand firmly with people on this side. But the nagging thing, and most of the folks that I read who stand on that side, who, who I have some agreement with, they all neglect 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Nobody talks about it. 
And that raises a red flag because 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 5, well, all the way through, well, not all the way, but a big portion of 1 Corinthians is to women who pray and prophesy in the church. I just can't get away from that. It's there. What do I do with it? It's in the same context of what Paul is talking about. Women, when you pray and prophesy, now he gives them some structure and some ways to do that so that they do not bring dishonor upon Christ or their husbands, but he is not forbidding their praying or prophesying. Likewise, we, we have gifts were given in chapter 12, seemingly given to all, and I'm going to say that included the women in the church, And Joel's prophecy that Peter quoted on on the day of Pentecost was that women would be gifted with the gift of prophecy. I can't escape those either. So what do I do? What do we do? We have this very clear passage in... 1 Corinthians 14 that we just read, we have this very clear passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and yet we have also these very clear passages that are, um, I'm going to say balance that out. I'm going to do my best to bring all these pieces together in a way that I think is accurate, and we may disagree, but I think it takes serious, all of God's word, not just, ladies, be quiet. It seems something was happening that created this confusion or chaos because notice the context in which this is in. Paul is saying there's chaos. And, prof, and you tongue speakers, this, I need to regulate you and put some restraint upon you. You prophets, something's going on here and I need to put some restraints on you so that everything is done decently in order. And then he brings in the women, which tells me that perhaps there's something going on among the wives or the women that is contributing to the chaos or the confusion that is going on. And that's why he's addressing them. Otherwise, Paul just didn't come out of left field and throw this in there. Just here, let me in my misogynistic patriarchy just jab it. Half our church. And I think the best explanation is that something is happening that is creating the confusion and chaos. And what I think the best explanation is is that Paul has just required the church to weigh carefully the prophecies that were presented. Women may participate in delivering the prophetic utterances. That would be consistent with 1 Corinthians 11 but that she might not participate in the assessment of those prophecies which would violate the command of submission noted both here and in 1 Timothy 2.12. So the careful weighing of prophecy falls under the teaching ministry of the church and to do so would be shameful which Paul has addressed in chapter 11. You can go back and listen to that. Chapter 11, verse 1, um, and you can listen to that. I won't rehash that message. And so probably they are either raising questions or contradicting their husbands who might be giving forth a prophecy. Some have even suggested that perhaps they follow the synagogue model where the women sat on one side and the the men sat on the other side and maybe they were asking questions back and forth. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but I'll just throw it out there for your um, information. And so, 
they are probably raising questions or contradicting um, the prophets who are speaking and they are making assessments which falls under the teaching ministry which um, would be um, which would be a violation of what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. When it says here silence, this is not an absolute silence in regards to women any more than it was absolute silence for the tongue speakers or the prophet speakers. It probably has more, it has more to do with the holding of one's tongue. Paul is not saying tongue speakers, never, you never can speak in the church. You can never say anything. There are certain conditions where you need to hold your tongue. Prophets. I'm not saying that you never can say it. You've got to be silent. No, but there are certain conditions when you need to hold your tongue. Wives, there are certain conditions where in the church you're going to need to hold your tongue. And then ask your husband at home. By the way, I know we hate this word subjection. They are to keep silent. They are not a preaching to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And I know that word submission has a problem, but let's just turn over to verse six, chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, and let's see how this word is used. Now I urge you, brothers, you know the household, that the household of Stephanus were the first converts of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these. All right? He's not saying enslave yourself. It's just... The church is to be subject to the elders. Um, uh, the Bible talks about that. So it does not include, or does not mean inferiority. Now, men have applied that, and that is wrong, but it has been, it has been done. So here's my conclusion, and then I'll do an, a quick application and then I'll keep going. Conclusion. The view that I've just presented to you harmonizes the, conflict, the so-called conflicting passages. Um, and I think it treats them all with great seriousness. I think it takes all the passages of text, brings them together, synthesizes them into, uh, by considering the context, considering the grammar, considering remote passages of the text, and seeing what does this have to say? And that's what I've, I think that's accurate. I'll hold that with an open hand. If you can show me otherwise, I'll be willing to listen. Um, but I do expect, let's take all of the passages of text and put them together and synthesize them. We are a church that we would, we would consider our church or label our church, if you will, complementarian. Complementarian... Um, just simply means that we see the sexes, men and women, as different but equal. Equal in essence, different in function. Women and men are different. Again, go back to chapter 11, my sermon there, and I explain this in, in a fair amount of detail. And I'm glad there's difference. I'm glad that men and women are different. And God made them different. And I think it is probably a violation of the... Cre- I, not maybe. It is a violation of the created order when we are trying to make men women and women men. This is turning the created order upside down. 
God has made us different. But he did not make one superior over the other. In the image of God, male and female, God created them. Them, male and female, in the image of God. We call that, that's what we would mean by equal in essence and different in function. That's what we would mean by complementarianism. And in complementarianism, there are certain tasks that are given to men that are not given to women. Not because men are better at it, but again, it's part of the created order. Listen to chapter 11 or I'll be happy to talk with you. And one of those areas in a church that have been given to men is that of being an elder or a pastor. It's not because men are smarter or better or more equal or people often say, well, I think women can, can do that because they're better at it than I am. Well, that's great. That's, that's a nice pragmatic approach, but it's just not a biblical approach. So in our church, we would hold to male elders, restricted to males. But as you can tell, we do not think that women have to keep silent because every Sunday, Suzanne gets up and leads us in music. She is not silent. If I believe that women were to be silent absolutely in the church, I would ask her, like after the service, well, right now, I would say step down. Don't lead us in a closing song. We have women read scriptures and give testimonies and tell about missionary endeavors and give testimonies of the great things that God has done. But there are certain, there is at least one function in the church that God, in his providence and wisdom, has restricted to men. This also holds true in a family. It holds true in creation. It holds true in the Trinity. God the Father is not more God than God the Son, who is not more divine than God the Holy Spirit, equal in essence, different in function. As I've said, the Holy Spirit did not die for your sins, but he is 100% God. All right, now that I've worked my way through that thorny issue, let me, um, and if you have questions, I'll be happy to talk with you and and work through some of these things. All right, and some of you may say I disagree with you, fine. But I think I've I've taken all the relevant passages and dealt with them. All right, hang with me for just a little bit more, right? I'm handing a lot of verses. But, Paul asks in verse 36, and I think that this is a great time to put this in there. Or was it from you that the word of God came? (laughs) Did God's word come from you? Charlie put this up on his... Sorry, Charlie, I stole this from your your Facebook page. um, But today we have substituted doctrinal belief for personal belief, and that is why so many people are devoted to causes, and few people are devoted to Christ. That's our problem. We have substituted doctrinal beliefs for personal beliefs. This is what Paul is saying. By what authority are you doing this? Did the word of God come from you? And let me just give you the answer to that rhetorical question. No. You are are not the sole possessors of God's word. You are to align yourself with God's word, not your own personal beliefs. It is God's word that tells us how we are to 
to live and to move and to, and to order our church services and to order our families. God's word does not originate with you. And our, one of our big problems today is saying, well, I feel. Well, that's fine. We don't want to cast out feelings. But what does the word of God say? And people say, well, I've had this experience. Again, I'm not doubting your experience. I'm saying, by what authority? This is what Paul is saying. By what authority? That's it. Are you the sole possessors of God's word? God's word didn't originate with us. It originated with God. We submit to his decrees. We do not force his decrees to to, um, bow to our own personal preferences. And then Paul goes on and he asserts apostolic authority. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. Note this, that I am telling you the very words of the Holy God. And if you doubt that, basically he says you are not a spiritual person. Um, if anyone does not recognize that, this he is not recognized. If you think you're a prophet, if you think you're spiritual, you will recognize and adhere to apostolic authority. And I am telling you what I'm telling you because this comes from the very mind and heart of God. Who is the spiritual person then? Which is interesting. It is not necessarily the one who has great flamboyant spiritual giftings, it is the one who adheres to the teachings of the apostles. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what did the early church do? They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. So, I love that, how we just, it's like Paul knows he's in controversial waters. So he concludes it with what? By what authority would you, by, by what authority are you operating? I'm telling you the very word of God. And if you don't recognize that, you're not spiritual. All right. We'll conclude with this. No, no, Suzanne, not yet. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you all know what it means when a preacher says an in conclusion, Right. Yeah, I mean, it means nothing. <laughs> I am getting close. If you have your notes, you can see I'm, I'm getting near the bottom. You just have to remember, you guys have three pages and I have four. <laughs> be deliberate, but be orderly. That's how I... Chaos is not celebrated. And uh, just think about the universe. Genesis chapter 1, you all know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's the second verse? And it was, vo- it was formless and void. What's the next verse? And the Spirit of God is hovering, and then God speaks into the chaos, and he creates order. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. And let there be, and there was, and let there be, and there was, and he begins to bring order into chaos. Chaos is not celebrated. God is a God of order. So, I will make a little bit of application here.
just for some of you who are new. Those of you who are not new, you can maybe understand our rationale for doing things the way we do things. Liturgy is important. Liturgy is just the order of service. And by the way, everybody has a liturgy. Everybody. Everybody orders their service some way. I, and Simone and I, we both have gone to very non-liturgical churches. In fact, churches that would askew and come against. We just let the spirit move and there was all sorts of chaos. But even then there was an order because I knew exactly what was going to happen when. I knew when we were going to, quote, sing in the spirit and I knew when somebody was going to give a prophecy and I knew when certain things were going to happen. There was an order. It wasn't spelled out. But everybody has a liturgy. We have a liturgy here. We have an order of service. I think a properly ordered worship service um, does not enable the disruptions that are highlighted in this letter. Gifts need to be used in the manner that God has ordained. Here's our liturgy, and I think it makes sense. First of all, we are reminded that God calls us to worship, and so we begin with a call to worship. Why? Because we are his guest. He invites us into this building where he, is, where he will be present with his people. He invites us. He calls us to worship. Imagine that. The God of the universe says, come. I want you to come and be in my presence. I want to be with you. And I'm inviting you to come into my house and sit at my table and be in my presence. So we respond to that with adoration, that is, we fix our gaze upon him. In other words, he is the center of everything we do and he is worthy of all adoration and glory. So we do not begin with ourselves. We begin with God. This is why we begin with a prayer of adoration or songs of adoration, because we begin to fix our mind heavenward. Why? Because the God of the universe has invited us here. We should spend some time gazing in wonder at the God who has created all things and says, come, come. It's impossible then to gaze upon the beauty and the holiness of this glorious God and not recognize that maybe we aren't so great ourselves, that maybe we have sinned against this holy God. We have not done what we ought to have done and we have done what we shouldn't have done. We have down-talked our friends. We have gossiped, we have been greedy, we have been selfish, we have, we have been lustful, we have coveted our neighbor's wives and his donkey. Well, maybe, that, well, some of us may, some people may covet their neighbor's donkey. We live in pine after all, so um, that's not too far-fetched. And so we confess that we see our need, we enter into the holy presence of God and we see our need for forgiveness, so we confess our sins. Oh, and we remember Not only do we confess our sins, but in Christ. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. And we see this most visibly at the Lord's Supper. Folks, if you are in Christ, it's a recognition that I have sinned against this holy God. And yet, God has paid the penalty of that sin in Jesus Christ himself. And so we we read scriptures of assurance that, folks, your sins are forgiven. And then we respond with thanksgiving. What else can you do? Right? You respond with thanksgiving. And then we spend a little bit of time. Our pastoral prayer is where we present our needs before the one who is able to do what he said he is going to do. 
God, here we are. Here's our prayer. Now we're kind of focused on ourselves. Lord, I have needs. I have desires. I have wants. Here they are. And then we feast on his word. Why? Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we exposit or draw out the meaning of the text that God has given. And then we depart with a blessing. That's our liturgy. It is, there is nothing magical or super holy about it. If you do it differently in your church, you can do it differently. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll change this. We just think this follows a very logical, very, uh, an order that makes sense. It is the gospel. Our liturgy is a gospel presentation. There is God. He is great. We have sinned. He forgives us if we confess. We are thankful and we are blessed. That's a gospel presentation in the very structure of everything we do. Now, you may do things differently at your church if you're visiting. Praise God. Um, I, I would just ask that we do things, th- we think through. Why do we do what we do? Why do we sing the songs we sing? Why do we do what we do? Let it all be done decently and in order. So, conclusion, Suzanne. Conclusion to you guys. I'm, I really, really am truly going to conclude. And it'll be fairly short, so hustle. How do we build up the church? If all things are to be done to build up the church, then you might ask, how? Well, I guess that could be an infinite list, and I won't give you an infinite list. Let me just give you a few hows. Number one, read the text prior to Sunday morning. You know where I'm going to be next week, right? Even if you don't know where I'm going to stop, you know I'm starting with 15.1. Read it, and oftentimes I put it out. This is where we're going to be. And I even give you sermon notes on Saturday. I did it on Sunday morning today. But read the text. Be familiar with it. Be ready to sing because we are called to sing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Sometimes even on Facebook or some other, sometimes on on email. So if you're not on Facebook, I will um, include a song that we're going to sing, especially if it's one we're not familiar with. Learn it or at least be familiar with it. So that we can sing and encourage one another. Be generous and hospitable to one another. Yeah, just do that. Maybe you can ask, how can I serve? God has gifted you in various ways. How can I serve? I can tell you a couple of ways you can serve. You can just be hospitable to the people who come into the church. Just greet them. Maybe... Instead of griping and complaining about, oh, the government, oh, the gas prices are so high, oh, inflation, oh, this, that. Maybe we'd build one another up in the Word of God. We would, if somebody's struggling, how can I pray with you today? Yeah, before the service. So stay, come a little early. Stay a little late. It won't hurt you. Get to know people. Say a hearty amen when we pray and we conclude. A good amen resounds to everything, to to one another. And then finally, everything we do, let it be done decently and in order. Our gracious God.